Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you're here for the first time, uh, my name's Howard. It's my privilege to lead this church. We've been around for quite a long time, um, since 1841. We're part of a faith that's been around for more than 2,000 years since the advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Um, So we are approaching this coronavirus with faith, and we'll talk more about that. We're not here to judge anybody who's wisely self-isolating, who's vulnerable. Um, We think it's right that they stay away. God bless them in that. We're going to work towards putting a live stream together very, very soon, or even trialing something this morning, so we can still be a church meeting in unity together through these difficult times. Uh, Today's topic is the cry for faith. We're looking at Mark chapter 9. If you want to open your Bible to that, it's on page uh, 1013 in the pew in front of you. Um, If you want to use one of our Bibles, um, I'm going to read from that. Sorry, it looks a bit different on screen because we've got the 1984 version that I'll be reading from and 2011 on the screen. But hey, there we go. Um, So let me read chapter 9 of Mark's gospel from verse 14, reading this biography of Jesus written in the first century. When they came to the other disciples, this is Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the mountain of transfiguration. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. They ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, he, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Looking around and really throughout almost the world, Jesus says, O oh, unbelieving generation, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed the boy violently and came out. The boy looked much like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet 
and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Some early, or some other manuscripts, not the early ones, say prayer and fasting. I think personally the and fasting is a later edition, so I'm just focusing in on this kind can only come out by prayer, which is a good moment for us to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its power. Lord, we thank you for its truth, for its life. And we'd ask you now to come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to presence yourself in an even greater way amongst us that we might know you more, see you more clearly, and experience the power of your word bringing life to us that we might serve you all the more dearly in this difficult time. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. the, The circumstances of life can awaken fear or doubt and sometimes both. And to state the obvious, the coronavirus is a good example of that. And since it's been a pretty scary and difficult and challenging time that we find ourselves in, I thought it would be good to start with a joke. Um, just to kind of break the ice a little bit and uh, just sh- shake us loose this morning. It's a story about a man who turned his back on God and one day he's out walking in a forest and he's saying to himself, marveling at the beauty of the trees, the, the amazing trees and nature and the animals and the beautiful river as well that's going along. And then suddenly he hears a noise coming from behind him and it's running towards And he looks back, ah, it's a bear, a giant bear is coming coming, chasing him down, and the man starts to run as fast as he can away from the bear, and he's looking back behind him, but the bear is gaining ground, coming closer towards him. The man's heart is beating faster, ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. He starts to panic, and he, and he falls over, and as he's starting to pick himself up, he looks up, and he sees the bear looming over him, large paw and claws about to strike. In that moment, he cries out to God. (laughs) And a light kind of comes upon him, and a voice speaks out um, from the heavens above to the man and says to the man, am I I to treat you now as if you're a Christian, but you turned your your back on me? How do you expect me to answer this this cry for help? And so the, the man looks up into the light, and he says, Yes, you're, you're right. It would be hypocritical of me to, uh, uh, to sort of claim to be a Christian at this moment. So maybe what you could do, if it's okay, is you could make the bear a Christian. <laughs> ah. Very well, comes the voice from heaven. And in this moment, everything kind of restarts again. The time restarts. The river starts moving. All the noise comes back of the forest. Uh, and the bear's hands, the paws, start to move. And they start to come together like this as he looms over the man and starts to say, for the food I'm about to receive, may the Lord make me truly thankful. Amen. <laughs> um, the circumstances of life, can't they? They can awaken faith or doubt or, or both. And I think we're in a season where we can start to doubt God. We can wrestle. Does God really exist? Is he there? Is he good? Does he care about us in this time? We can even question, if you're a follower of Jesus, whether you have faith. 
whether your faith is genuine because you doubt. And surely, surely a good Christian can't doubt, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I want to clear that up straight away and just say that it is okay for a true follower of Jesus to have doubts. Um, the greatest man born of a woman, um, it wasn't me, um, by the way, <laughs> no way near. Jesus says it. The greatest man born of a woman was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist doubted. He doubted. When circumstances went tough and he was thrown into prison, he doubted. Is Jesus really the one? Look back through the first part of the Bible. Sarah, she, she doubts. I'm too old to have a child. That's just ridiculous. She laugh out loud, kind of mocking rebuke of God's promise to her. That's what she doubts. Or Elijah, he's just seen the amazing miracle. Mount Carmel, fire from heaven, wow. But he descends into a great pit of, of despair and discouragement. He starts to doubt God to the point of suicide. Here we have this boy's father, and he has doubts. Even down through the centuries since then, we get to the man called to be the greatest preacher of the 19th century. I don't know if that's true, but that's what people said about him. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. They even, it said, made a waxwork model of him for Madame Tussauds because he was so famous in his time. And he had his doubts. <laughs> he writes in a, in a book called Lectures to My Students, he calls them his fainting fits. So I wanted to start by saying it's okay to have doubts. But hey, what it is not okay is to conceal those doubts, is to sort of hide them, is to pretend that you don't really have them, that you're like this super cool Christian who never has doubts. No, not me. Um, I think that's really hypocritical because we all have doubts. We have moments we go up and down and we're unsure of ourselves and God and everything like that. Um, and we need to be honest and real about that. It's hypocritical, but it's also pretty stupid because God knows everything and he knows if you've got doubts. So you're to, you can't hide them from him. So my first point, and the points today are going to be more by way of, of conclusion than introduction, is reveal, don't conceal. Reveal, don't conceal. Here we have a divinely inspired, God-given prayer that God has got behind and given his seal approval to for the moments when we doubt. I believe. Lord, help me in my unbelief. God, I'm trying to trust, but I'm wrestling through with my doubts. That is a prayer for this time, I tell you. <laughs> when you look at the news, when you <laughs> watch the death counts and the, those infected, all that sort of stuff, and you start to go, oh, I'm unsure again, I'm not sure, and difficult articles read, all this sort of stuff, and people doing that, other nations doing this and that, you go, oh, I've got to come back, and uh, I've got to come back, God, and pray this prayer. This prayer is for all of us at this time. But before we move on, I want to ask the question, where do doubts come from? Why do we have them? What's that sort of source? What's going on? What's the cause here? Um, and I think that one of the issues that we sometimes have with doubt is that we can blame the wrong person. I want to give you an example of that um, in how it works out in, in our household. So um, thankfully, uh, God has taught me to try and say these things in my head, not out loud. But it happens like this. It'll be like when I'm going to the fridge and saying things like, who has not put the maple syrup back in the right place? Where is it? 
things like that. You obviously never do these sorts of things. Um, or it can be like, who forgot to put out the bins? Now it smells, we've left it, it's not good. Or this is, this is the most difficult one that happens. Maybe it's going to happen more at this time that we're in. Who used the last bit of toilet paper and didn't say anything? And now I'm sat here like, what? That's not fair. And there, you see, there are moments where I sort of catch myself in, thankfully, a growing sense of self-awareness uh, and the sort of recollection of memory as I'm beginning to say, bet it was my wife. Bet it was the kids who did this. And then shock horror, this memory comes back to my mind and I'm like, oh no, it was me. I did it. And I'm blaming all these other people, and it's me. I'm responsible. Now, as I take a step back from this passage, I wonder sometimes whether we're not like this towards God. We're blaming him for all the bad stuff in the world. It's on him when actually it's a little bit more us, isn't it? Maybe that's an understatement, a little bit. But it's also actually Satan. And we need to make sure that we blame the main offender. This is the second point. Look at Satan in this passage. Look at what's going on here. He is seeking to destroy a boy from childhood. Preying on the weak, making him mute and deaf and throwing him into water or fire to destroy him. Satan is real. He is the active agent of evil and he hates your guts and he wants to destroy you and every person on this planet. What he's very, very good at, though, is concealing his existence, especially in the secular Western world, so that we don't blame him for all that stuff. We blame God instead and use it as a reason to doubt him or not believe in him. Now, you might be here and you're thinking, um, or you're listening online, I don't know, and and you're saying... um, this guy's nuts. Now, you may have other reasons to think that, um, but I would say not maybe on this point, because simply saying that the devil exists is a very legitimate explanation for the origins of evil. Where does evil come from? What's the nature of evil? Is there such a thing as absolute evil, bad stuff that is really, really wrong for everybody everywhere? And I would say you need an explanation for that. I've got one. What's yours? And let, let's, let's talk about it. I'd love to know that. Satan is is real. And he's hiding himself so often from people. Now you might think to yourself, but didn't God create him? Hold on a minute. Can't Can't I somehow blame God in this? Because God created Satan and Satan's bringing evil into the world. But isn't that God's fault because he created him? Well, hold on a minute. Satan, and we call them fallen angels, which are demons, went rogue. They disobeyed God. But God is still sovereign and he's still in control. God amazingly allows for free will, for us to be true uh, moral agents responsible for our own actions and yet be sovereign and in control at the same time. How does that work? I actually don't know. It's a great mystery. It's a tension. I think it's one of the reasons that helps us to say that God really is God. 
Because I can't explain him away. I can't explain ideas like this about there's an antimony, we would say, a paradox in these two things. They're intention, yet we know they're true. But God himself is an antinomy. He's trinity. He's three in one. They reflect him. He's other than us. But let me tell you what I do know is that God stands behind evil and good, but asymmetrically. He promotes good and he permits evil. He restricts and controls and provides a limit to evil, but he does permit it, but for his good purposes. We sometimes can't see those good purposes, though. We may not even see them in our lifetime, but we have reasons to trust God that he is good and working for those purposes, as we'll see throughout this message. One point of clarity, though, before we continue. Not all illnesses are demonic. I hope that's fairly obvious. That's not what I'm saying um, at all. But clearly, some are. And Jesus and his followers, his disciples, sometimes they heal, sometimes they deliver. The challenge for us living in a secular Western world is that We mostly think that demons have gone on holiday (laughs) to some other part of the world, different time zone. We don't even think that way. But here for Jesus, normal part of everyday life. It's just being aware of that. And that's not to panic us. Oh, 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 you know, panic, you know, demons everywhere. No, 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 but Jesus is in control. Yeah, he delivers them. That's the point of this passage. Let's have a look at it now. Let's go into verse 22. Look at the, the boy's father and his issues. I see the boy's father having two real issues. He's asking Jesus, asking God about his ability. Is God really great? Is he able? And is God compassionate? Is he willing? Is he good? Is he great? And is he good? What's interesting, I think, in one of the enemy's tactics is to seek to lessen our view of God. Always trying to downplay him, minimize him. God doesn't exist. If he does exist, then he's just some kind of blind watchmaker. He set everything in motion, then he disappears up into the sky somewhere to look indifferently down without really caring that much about his creation, the sort of deist view of God. Or he's like one of these Greek gods, some kind of Marvel superhero with special powers and all that kind of stuff who's dependent, really, his power only comes out of the worship that he's given. If you look carefully, I think all of these live in the realm of human-created ideas of God. And our conception of God is what I'm trying to say to you, is he sits above that, and what's wonderful about him is he breaks into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, that we might know him, that he might know us and be able to identify with us by sharing the human experience, to know a God who comes into suffering. He puts himself on the hook of suffering firsthand so he can experience it, relate to people who are enduring suffering and destroy suffering itself. This is what God is like. And we see him here in this story present. Where is God in difficult times? He's right in the midst of it. He's present. 
This isn't just some nice philosophical idea or some private dream that someone had about God. He comes into history, and history records and testifies to his coming through ancient manuscripts preserved carefully, passed down to us to this day. God is right in the midst of this father and son's suffering. God comes because he cares. God cleanses because he cares. This is what God is like. This is his heart. What's interesting is to ask ourselves what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus, sure, he does challenge the sort of unbelief of everybody else, his disciples and the religious people around him. But in dealing with this man, he's really very tender. He doesn't say, how dare you doubt me? Don't you know who I am? He doesn't say, I'm not going to help you till you get rid of your doubts. No, it seems that Jesus actually comes close to the people who admit their need who express a sense of helpless repentance. And he actually stays a little bit further away from the people who claim to put on this false pretense of perfect righteousness. Just look in the passage at these two groups here as Jesus comes down the mountain. And who is he going to give his attention to? Is it to the scribes, the religious elites who are arguing very arrogantly, who's got the correct interpretation of this bit of scripture or that bit of scripture, debating amongst themselves very proud like that? No. Does he even immediately come to his nine disciples who are clearly struggling? No, it seems that they quite possibly have been relying on their past success in delivering demons. Mark chapter 6, they've done all all that before. Why can't we just do it again? Relying on that as if they're proud, sort of self-reliance. We don't need God anymore. We just do it ourselves. The only person in the story that Jesus comes to straight away is the father, the man, who is willing to recognize that he's utterly helpless in the face of suffering and evil. And he can't do anything about it himself. That is the heart of God. That is what God is like. He is on your side. If you recognize you're humble and helpless, he's on your side against evil. And Jesus starts to speak to the man to awaken faith in him. If, if, if I can, <laughs> if I can, he's saying everything is possible for him who believes. Hey, nothing is impossible for God. He's trying to awaken the father's face, faith and then he demonstrates it. He delivers this boy right in front of his eyes to give him evidence to believe. I think God is doing something like that for all of us this morning. I believe that he's given us evidence through the supernatural organization of Scripture. In the way that he has structured this passage. It is yet another story about a father and a son. One commentator asked the question, are we to see in this story the grieving heart of God the Father for his lost children? good question. Yes, I think we are. If you look at the bookends of the passage that kind of give the structure and shape to the passage, it's 
Mark chapter 8, verse 30, and then Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And in both of these incidences, Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection. There's another little clue in verse 26 here where it says that the boy is is seemingly dead. He looks like a corpse. It's interesting to me that that's really often the way that God works. Things get worse before they get better. Jesus here, the boy comes to him. The the boy is shrieking. (laughs) There's panic. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to talk to the father. How long has this happened for? What's going on? He's not reactionary. He's very focused. He knows what he's doing. This is a wonderful story about a father who loves his son that speaks of the greater father who loves his son, Jesus Christ. And we see in it this sense of the father who has loved his son for all eternity coming to work together and Jesus the son willingly letting himself be destroyed not by water or by fire but upon a cross going mute before his oppressors so that he can cleanse us of our sin and of our evil. This is the wonderful story of the cross that we have been set free by an incredible sacrifice. But, you know, sometimes it just looks like things have got worse before they get better, doesn't it? I wonder if that's how your life feels at the moment. All you see as you look around you is death, hopelessness, I'm reminded of the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 and they are distraught because at Jesus' cross everything looks black, it looks like it's over. They've given their lives to following this Messiah but he's not a Messiah anymore and they're losing hope and they're so discouraged and dark and this stranger comes and he starts to walk alongside them and ask them questions to help, what's going on, are you okay? And then he starts to go through the scriptures from Genesis all the way through showing to them about the Messiah that he would die and he he would come alive again. All the prophecies, and their hearts are starting to burn inside them. And when they eventually get back to eat a meal with him, and the bread is broken in communion, suddenly it's Jesus. It was Jesus, and Jesus is gone. Their fear, their despair, their panic, their sense of hopelessness stopped them from seeing Jesus who is right with them in that moment. What is our fear doing to our relationship with Jesus, with God? Are we able to see him and know his love and his presence and his kindness? Do we know the hope that we're called to? Jesus has come, but he's coming again And what happened to his body in it being glorified, what happened to this whole world, including your physical body, where every trace of sin will be removed and a new heavens and a new earth will come. There'll be no sin, sickness, suffering, or death. 
where no eye shall shed a tear. There will be no viruses in this place. It will be eternity and it will be gloriously joyful forever. That's our hope. And nothing, nothing can separate us from it. But sometimes it's hard to conceive of this. So I, I want to sort of bring us back to something I think is hardwired into us. It's the, the father-son love story over all creation that we are caught up into, that is hardwired into our very kind of psyche being mainframe. And all of media and culture really is retelling the same story in different ways. Father and son, redemption stories, Star Wars, Harry Potter. It's everywhere. If you stop and look, we're caught up in this story about the ultimate, most awesome love of God revealed in his love for his son, working together to bring salvation to you. But it's so hard to grasp hold of in this day and age when many of us have, I mean, I would include myself in this, I have a great dad, but many people today have had disappointing dads. And you struggle to really imagine what it, what it is like to be truly, truly loved by God the Father. So I, I want us to take um, some of the best earthly fathers in their best moments and to try and recall that to mind and then to supersize it by infinity to understand how loved we really are. In September last year, there was a father who was blind, who picked up his son <laughs> and ran with him out of our house to rescue him from, from the storm, Hurricane Dorian that was taking place. This father, even though he was blind, rushing in, he loves his son who's disabled, he's going to carry him out to safety. Oh, I love the story of Carlos Pereira. He's a dad, he's a very successful man who gave up everything, quit his job, so he could develop an app for his daughter with cerebral palsy so that she could have a voice because they'd never been able to communicate properly. Wow. That's love. For me, the most moving story of all is of Rick, his son, and then father, Dick Hoyt. Maybe you've heard this before, but Rick was born with quadriplegia unable to walk in a wheelchair, told that he would actually not make it beyond a few years of age, but through his parents' love, they nurtured him. At one point, he gets to his teenage years, and he says to his dad that he'd like to take part in a 5,000-meter race, charity run. And the father um, is not really a, a runner, but his son has asked him to do that. And he says, yes, I'll do that. I'll, I'll push you in that run. And when they get to the end of the race, they've had such a great time. Rick says to his dad, Dick, he said, when we ran together, I felt like I wasn't handicapped anymore. Wow. That's a moment for a father. He absorbed that sentence. And he decided he was going to run. He was going to swim. He was going to push he was going to pull his son through race after race after race after race, marathons, triathlons in America, all over the world. He was going to carry his son that his son might not feel handicapped anymore. I want you to know 
That's nothing compared to what God wants to do for you. He wants to carry you. To run with you. That you might not feel handicapped by sin anymore. This is the third point I've been trying to make. The way out of unbelief is to see the heart of God. When you see him, when you know him, it's very hard not to have faith in him. How do we grow in that? Well, we grow in that through prayer. (laughs) That seems to be what happens. There's a little debrief that Jesus has with his disciples privately, verses 27 to 28, and they're saying, why couldn't we we do it, Jesus? (laughs) Why, Why wasn't it possible for us? And Jesus says to them, you know, some are more difficult than others. This kind only comes out by prayer. This is a very interesting comment because these nine disciples, um, as the nine because Jesus had taken three with him to the Mount of Transfiguration, I, I would have thought that the nine disciples did probably try to pray in some way about this. I hinted at it already. I, I think... Maybe their prayer was polluted by their proud self-reliance. Were they really praying in absolute dependence on God? But also, perhaps Jesus is saying there's something missing in our, in, our, in our prayer, that prayer is more of a lifestyle. It's more of an intimate relationship with the, with the Father that we are being invited into through prayer. I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, right at the start of chapter 9. And he's taking them up on the mountain. One other gospel writer, Luke, in his biography says, Jesus took them up on the mountain to pray. They were going up. Jesus is saying to these closest disciples of his, you really want to know God, you want to move in power, you want to serve him, then the key to that is prayer. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35 It says Jesus got up very early in the morning whilst it was still dark and he found a solitary place in order to pray. Right at the beginning of his ministry, this is a pattern for his whole lifestyle on earth and ministry with us is prayer. That it is prayer, that the place of intimate abiding leads to almighty, powerful anointing. So there's a bit of a challenge for us here. If we're not seeing answers to prayer in the way that we would like, we're not seeing people healed in the way that we would hope, maybe we're not praying in the way that Jesus wants. Now, I need to say that that doesn't mean that everybody we pray for should be healed. There is a doctrine of suffering. Some prayers that we pray will not be answered because we trust God is working for good in ways that we don't yet understand. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't exactly know what that was. But God never took it away from him despite all of his prayers. It taught him weakness. And in his weakness, it released power through trust and dependence upon God. But there is still this challenge for us. Are we willing to step out? To let Jesus tempt out faith from us through this passage. And to pray with more expectancy 
for God to move in healing, restoring power. I wonder today, where are you wobbling? Where has doubt crept in? Where are you struggling to trust God and live by faith? Is it for your health or your families? Is it all around this whole issue of the coronavirus? Is it about your work, your job? Is it about singleness and the longing to be married, meeting Mr. or Mrs. Wright? (laughs) Is it about your marriage itself? Maybe it's not in the place you want it to be. Is it about money and finances and all this stuff? Or could it be about the church? Could it be about this place, Westminster Chapel, and you're, you're wobbling? What does the future look like of God's church in this time in the nation or Westminster Chapel? And so many prophetic words have been spoken over us about, about what God would do, but I'm not sure if they're really of God anymore. I'm beginning to question and doubt, is there a place for me here? And I think Jesus would say to us, he'd tempt us, if I can, (laughs) if I can, everything is possible for him who believes. He's stirring us to live by faith. And this is the final point of this message, to pray our hearts out to God. We want to know God. We want to move in power for the glory of God. Then we need to pray with everything that we've got. The cry for faith. Being honest about our doubts. Asking him to give us faith. Faith at this time. Faith for the church. Faith for our friends we want to see come to to Christ. Faith for his glory and his name to be made known in a significantly greater way in our city. Faith. If we want to see hundreds of lives transformed, we want to see people standing up for Jesus, then we better get down on our knees in prayer. Because it's through intimate, abiding, closeness to the heart of God that we know who we are and whose we are and what hope that we have, and what authority has been given to us as children of God, that we begin to start to step out and walk by faith, believing that I am immortal on this earth until my work is done. I am safe, and I will live that way. And if I die, if I perish, I perish, like Esther, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. If we die, we die. We know we're going to be with God. I am here for this time and this moment to make him known. That's what God, I believe, is doing at this hour. And I believe he wants to do something this morning to give us some further evidence to help us to believe. Like he did for this boy's father. So I'm going to invite Two responses now. Maybe the band could come up. And the first of those responses would be to to pray for the sick. Right here, right now. To pray for you if you're sick. The second, I would love for us to pray for people who feel called to move in the gift of healing. As so much death is coming, God wants to move in a new wave of life and hope, and healing power. I have been privileged to see and witness some extraordinary miracles 
done by God through other leaders, I have seen legs regrow. In my own ministry, I've had the privilege to pray for people who've been healed. I have seen viruses gone like that, proven the following few days by a doctor in this place. Seen someone's back so remarkably healed that they got up and started to run through the church all the way through to the back, telling everybody, God's healed my back, God's healed my back, God's healed my back. There was a time when we were healing knees incredibly regularly that we started to almost get a bit too confident that every time someone's knee was injured, we just knew God was in it, that he was healing knees. I, I don't know why. Why does he do that? But what I do know is that God wants to heal and make his manifest presence known to a people who are struggling to hold on to faith. So I want to invite you, if you're here and you have any form of medical condition, physical or a mental, emotional issue that needs healing right now, that you would take a step of faith and stand up. Thank you. And then I want to ask you to put your hand on where that condition is. If that's appropriate, obviously, don't do that if it's inappropriate. And in this moment, I'm going to pray. But rather than make us passengers around, it's not just about my prayers. Let's pray in unity now together as a church. If you see someone stood near you, start to pray for them. We're going to pray for God's spirit to come. Lord Jesus, we ask you, creator of all things, the great deliverer and the great healer, to come and manifest your presence in this place. Lord, come and bring healing to every person stood up in this room right now. Lord, we ask you, Spirit of God, we command to this disordered flesh healing. Lord, what you will do in eternity, we ask you will do right now in this place. Lord, by the authority that you've given us as your children, we command out sickness in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, who will one day remove sickness from the face of this world. Lord, we ask for an early down payment now in this place to awaken faith at this time, to give confidence and boldness to serve you and glorify you. Lord, we want to be a people who live by faith and not fear. Come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. More of you. More of you. Increase what you're doing. Pour out your love upon each person. Lord God, unlock barriers and unlock doubts. Lord God, unlock those questions by your love. I pray that each person now would be filled with your Holy Spirit, that they would know how precious and loved they are by you, God, that you would come to die for their sin in their place on a cross. Lord God, I ask they would know the embrace, the holding of your presence with them at this time, that all of their thinking that you can't do this, God, would be laid to rest in this moment. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, and move, and move and move amongst us. 
ask if you are here and you feel that God has given you or you would like to have the gift of healing, of praying for the sick, and not always, but on some pretty amazing occasions, seeing people healed. I want to ask you to stand as well. If that's you, then I ask you to put your arms out in a position of reception. We're going to ask God to send the Holy Spirit and to anoint you. Lord Jesus, giver of gifts, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. Lord, we ask you now for each one who's longing to move in the gift of healing. Lord, pour this gift out upon them. Increase it. Fan into fame. Awaken it, Lord, for your glory, for your name as a sign and a demonstration of the Spirit's power to confirm who you are, that the gospel has power. This is the way of salvation. Lord Jesus, we ask at this time, as people are being taken ill, even dying, Lord, we ask for wonderful stories of healing, of healing and hope. Come, Spirit of God, and bless these people. Bless these people. Increase their faith to go out even today and give them opportunities to step out in faith. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.